right. Well, good morning. This morning we come to our fourth week in our study, How We Got the Bible. I want to spend a little bit of time reviewing some things uh, from the first three weeks that I think are important for this discussion. Before I do that, uh, I want to say thank you for those of you who have submitted questions already. I appreciate that. Uh, If you have any questions from the series that you would like to ask, um, today is your last day. Uh, If you can send them in today, that would be great. I will give grace, but if you can do it today, that would be super helpful. Um, there's a link on the website that you can use to submit a question. It will be anonymous, so if you're like, I just don't want to ask a question and then to know who it is, you won't know who it is. So, um, would love for you to do that next week. That's what this time is going to be, is answering uh, those questions um, in our time together. So, please do that if that would be helpful for you. Uh, In week one of the study, we talked about what the Bible is. The Bible is not just a book, it is a library of books, many books describing the origins of the Hebrew people, the person and work of Jesus Christ, and the spread of the Christian church. And its central character is God, God who reveals Himself fully through Christ. In the words of Michael Byrd, the Bible is a mixture of history, literature, and theology. It contains a diverse range of genres, including ancient Near Eastern creation stories, Bronze Age law codes, historical narratives, Hebrew poetry, wisdom literature, prophecy, Greco-Roman biography, ancient Greek historiography, letters, and an apocalypse. So that's a lot. It's a lot to consider when you pick up the Bible, but it's definitely part of what we should consider when we pick up the Bible. It affects the way that we think about it. It affects the way that we read it. We discussed in the first week how different genres should be read in different ways. We, we We don't read the book of Proverbs the same way that we read the book of John. We should read the Bible in the context it was written into, and that takes work. It takes effort, but it's necessary. You want to remember that the Bible was written for you, but it wasn't written to you. In the second week, we talked about the compiling of the Scriptures, what we call the canonization of the Bible. We saw how the Bible was written and compiled over many, many years, over centuries. It was copied and passed down from different texts, from the Masoretic texts and the uh, Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that through that, yes, there are things that were picked up along the way and added along the way, but those things do not make the Bible untrustworthy. There's been a consistency and a faithfulness throughout, and ultimately what was written by Paul What he says in Romans 15 was, it was written to give us hope. And then last week, we looked at the inspiration of Scripture. What does it mean that the Bible is the inspired Word of God? What does Paul mean when he says that it is breathed out by God? Talked about how Scripture is both a human and a divine text. That God inspired humans to write it, and in that, I mentioned that I don't 
think that it was a word-for-word dictation from God, but rather His Spirit guiding and influencing human authors at the contextual level or the conceptual level. The result of that is a book or a library of books that is trustworthy, that is true. And so all of that brings us to our topic today, which is the authority of Scripture, the authority of the Bible. We need to ask, what authority or rule does this book have over us? As a pastor, I'm aware that when I approach a topic of the authority of Scripture, there is going to be a spectrum of starting points from one side that says, you're going to have to convince me that this ancient book has any authority over me, all the way to, if the Bible is inspired by God, then it has every answer for every question we have about science to math to what we should eat and on and on and on. And so I'm hopeful to be an encouragement and a help to everyone along that spectrum and everyone in between. I want to say from the beginning, I believe the Bible is authoritative because God is the author of all of it. But let's discuss what that means for us. We're going to look again this week at the same text we looked at last week, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. So go ahead and turn there. If you're able, when you get there, stand and follow along as I read. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. We praise You for the gift that it is to us. And Lord, we really do want to know You. We want to know You through it. We want to know what this gift is that you have entrusted to us. We want to handle it rightly. And so I do pray, Lord, for your help through not just this sermon, but through this series, Lord, that you would help to shape us into people who love you and know you and love you through your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. We looked at the beginning of this text last week. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's inspired by God. And Paul continues, that means something. If the Scriptures come from God, whatever that looks like, then they have some sort of authority. The Bible is authoritative because God is the author of all of it. Paul says here that it means some things for us. The first is Scripture is profitable for teaching. We consider today the authority of Scripture that certainly has bearing. The Scriptures are entrusted to us to teach us. 
They benefit us and are useful to us for education and for our edification. Scripture is beneficial to us in that it communicates knowledge concerning God's revelation in Christ. Now, we should stop here because we take for granted our ability to teach ourselves, our ability to read for ourselves, to process information in written form. We, we take for granted our level of education even. Because the reality is, for the majority of the history of the church, not only was the written word not available to the average Christian, but even if they had a copy, the likelihood of them being able to read it was almost zero. The preservers of the Scriptures throughout the early church into the Middle Ages and up into the Reformation were the religious leaders and authorities, those who taught the Scriptures. God's pattern has been that His people would be taught His Word, and we have the New Testament to back that up. That's why Paul tells Timothy to be ready in season and out of season to preach the Word. It's why Jesus goes from place to place teaching. That's why we're going to see as we get into the book of Acts in, in a few weeks how the church spreads through teaching. Now, is reading for ourselves to learn what the Bible teaches bad? By no means. But the Scriptures were never designed to be received in isolation from other people. Scripture is profitable for teaching in community, in the church, to the church, with the church. Next, Paul says, Scripture benefits us because it's profitable for reproof. Now, that word Reproof means that it warns us. It warns us against false doctrine. We saw that clearly in our series through the book of Galatians. It also warns us against wrong conduct, helping us to see when we're living in a way that's not in accord with God's word and God's will. Scripture is also profitable for correction, Paul says. That's along the same lines as reproof. It's the positive side of reproof. It leads us into the right direction. Not just warns us against the wrong, but leads us in the right. It's what, what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 119, 105. Your, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And then lastly here, Paul says that Scripture is profitable in training for righteousness. Now, this is important. We, if we are in Christ, if we trust in Christ, we are credited with righteousness. Our account is made full with righteousness. We're credited with righteousness the moment we trust in Jesus. When we believe, we are counted righteous. righteous. That's why Paul can say, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That is gone because you are now counted as righteous. But our actions don't reflect that so often. So our position in Christ doesn't line up with our practice. And so we need training in that. And that's what Paul means here. It trains us in righteousness, in right living. We need the help of the Spirit through the Scriptures to train us 
to live, to be actively living in the ways of God, building, building the muscles of faithful living. So we have this gift in the Scriptures, and we can take from what Paul says that, that, that if all Scripture is inspired by God, and if it is profitable in all these ways, then certainly it has authority over us in some way. But what does that mean? What authority does the Bible have? Or to ask it differently, does the Bible have all authority? The Bible is the word from God and is true. And therefore, it contains the weight of divine authority. There should be no doubt about that. Maybe you've seen uh, the bumper sticker. And let me say in advance before I read this, not the best way ever to get your theology, okay? But maybe you've seen this bumper sticker. The Bible says it. I believe it. Did I know the last part? That settles it. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. How many of you have seen that? Okay, good. No one knew it, the rest of it, but that's okay. Maybe you saw that and you amend that from your car. If you're like me in the past, you probably at some point in your life said yes or nodded in your heart at minimum. So is that what we mean by biblical authority? The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. I don't think so. I don't think we can say of the Scriptures, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. And I would add to that, I'm pretty certain that not a single pe person who owns one of those stickers lives that way. Why? Why would, why would I not believe that? Because not everything in the Bible is authoritative for us. And we need to learn what is descriptive and what is prescriptive and how to discern the difference. Some things in the Bible describe historical events and some things prescribe ways to live. There are many commands in the Bible that are not prescriptive for us today. Now, maybe you're nervous at this point, so let me give you just a couple of examples. You consider Acts chapter 15, such a great point in the book of Acts, the Jerusalem Council. It's an incredibly important part of church history. You have Jews who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and you have Gentiles who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And so these questions arise that Paul's addressing also in the book of Galatians of what is now required because up to this point, the Jews have had laws that they follow strictly, laws that prohibited eating certain things, laws that said that they must be circumcised, and on and on and on. And so this council meets and determines that it would be good for them to abstain, it says, from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. 
And then it says, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. So, we should ask, is all of that authoritative over us here in this room? Do the rest of the scriptures seem concerned about how well done our meat is cooked? And I would say to that, no. This was a purposeful instruction to the people then to help build a bridge from Jewish faith in the law to faith in Christ. You notice that there are a lot of things left out from what was required before when they list these things in Acts 15. But we would ask, is it wrong or is it sinful for us today to order our steak medium rare? Or God forbid, rare? Of course it's not. It's a purposeful instruction. When Paul When Paul addresses the same thing in Corinthians, he doesn't bring this up. I'll give you another one that I think is much more simple, okay? In our text today, 2 Timothy 3, if you look at the next chapter, in chapter 2, verses, uh, chapter 2, excuse me, 2 Timothy 4, verse 13, it says this. This is Paul writing to Timothy. When you come... Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Now, this is a command. And so we ask, is this authoritative for me? Do you come to this verse in your devotions and stop at once and say, this is a command. What do I, what do, I do with this? I need to bring Tony jackets. No. You know that I would prefer shoes anyway. But not at all. It is a command from Paul, but it's specifically to Timothy. And only Timothy. It will never be a command to anyone else. No one else is supposed to bring things to Paul because they read this or anyone else. So again, we have to do the work to learn what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. John Stott wrote this, the hallmark of authentic evangelicalism is not subscription, but submission. That is, it is not whether we subscribe to an impeccable formula about the Bible, but whether we live in practical submission to what the Bible teaches, including an advanced resolve to submit to whatever it may later be shown to teach. In other words, we need to know context and we need to know intent. Just like we discussed last week, we have to confess the difficulties within the text of Scripture. The Bible is a sacred, holy text. And within that sacred text are commands for genocide. Commands or seeming permission for polygamy. And that's just two things. There are more like them, really hard things. So do the Scriptures have authority over me in those parts? The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it? No, that would be naive and really terrible to imagine. 
There are parts of the Bible that are not written for you to submit to in obedience. They're descriptive. Not prescriptive. They're descriptive of history. Descriptive of sin and sinners. And so what do we do with that? Do we just, do we just dump the Old Testament? No, because as we're going to talk about in a few minutes, Jesus as well as the apostles, affirmed the Old Testament. Do we divide it up? Do we divide up the different kinds of laws and the civil and ceremonial and moral components with the civil and ceremonial aspects fulfilled by Christ and the moral law signified by the Ten Commandments is remaining in full effect? That's what I used to do. But as Michael Byrd says concerning this, that's a great way to dodge some of that strange stuff in the Old Testament, but it won't do. The law is the law in indissoluble unity. It cannot be neatly carved up into artificial categories with some parts haphazardly disregarded. Plus, there are a whole bunch of moral laws outside of the Ten Commandments that are affirmed in the New Testament. Again, the Bible is indeed authoritative, but not everything in the Bible is authoritative for us. Some things are descriptive while other things are prescriptive, prescribing or telling us what to do or how to live. And there are commands that do not apply to us today, and that doesn't make those parts of the Bible unprofitable or unnecessary or untrue. We need to understand that the biblical stories and commandments for things like genocide deal with harsh realities, not necessarily ideal circumstances. It gets into what theologians refer to as the progressive nature of divine revelation. As we get more and more scripture, revelation revealed to us, we get a clearer picture of the story of the Bible. And then along these lines, we, we, we must see that Jesus is the unique and final authority of all of it and over us. Jesus is the unique and final authority over us. I said this last week, but I want to repeat it. Scripture recognizes God's ultimate purpose of redemption and restoration of all things in Christ. In Christ. Ultimately, that's the good news of inspiration. God's not confined by time or space or the earth or anything in it. His word was always meant to reveal himself and draw his people to him, and his people will be with him for all of eternity. Because God's word is an arrow, an arrow to the hope we have in Christ who in the beginning was with God and was God. So I want to spend the remainder of our time considering the authority of Scripture through the lens of that truth, that that Scripture is an arrow to Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 3, just before the text we looked at last week and today, in verse 15 it says this, 
and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul is absolutely speaking about the Old Testament here because that's all that, that he had. That was his canon. He says it was able to make Timothy or anyone else wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That feels very similar to Jesus with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Going through the scriptures and showing how all of it pointed to himself. And so let's consider some things. First, our view of the scriptures, all of the scriptures, should align with Jesus' view of the scriptures. Our view of the scriptures should be the same as Jesus' view of the scriptures. And so what did that look like? Well, Jesus obeyed the Old Testament. We see that clearly throughout the gospel accounts of his life on earth. And in the midst of that life, of his life on earth, we are told ultimately what authority of Scripture should look like for disciples of Jesus. When Jesus and Peter and James and John ascend the hill and Jesus is transformed, transfigured before them, God's voice comes from heaven. And God says of His Son, Jesus, before these three disciples, this is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to Him. The Scripture's authority over us is ultimately Christ's authority over us. We are called to listen to Jesus. And we do that by remembering some things. We do that first in remembering His view of Scripture, which is what? Jesus and the disciples treat the Old Testament with complete trust and reverence. And never with suspicion. They have an absolute commitment to its right interpretation in light of Jesus. We see that Jesus, God's Son, expresses His belief that God's covenant promises in the Scriptures have come true in His own life and death and resurrection. That He's the fulfillment of the law. And so that impacts how we observe and how we interpret the law as His followers. Or it should impact that. And then finally, we remember this. Jesus submitted to the Old Testament Scriptures. Jesus submitted to the Old Testament Scriptures. And He was the point that the arrow points to in both the Old and the New Testament Scriptures. And therefore, if we want to know what it looks like to submit to the authority of Scripture the right way, we look at the life of Jesus. Whatever whatever submission to the authority of Scripture looks like, it looks like Jesus because He did it perfectly. Perfectly. 
It's being poor in spirit. It's mourning brokenness and sinfulness. It's meekness. It's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It's showing mercy to others. It's being pure in heart. It's living the life of a peacemaker. And sometimes it's being persecuted for righteousness. And those things that I just mentioned are just the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus also demonstrates what submission to Scripture looks like by welcoming outcasts, by embracing the lost, by giving to those who needed Him, receiving the marginalized, healing the broken, and challenging the religious leaders who taught and did otherwise. And in the midst of all of that, he lived life fully. He ate and laughed with friends. He enjoyed weddings. He went to parties. He lived and loved well. It's what I think listening to Jesus means. It's what I think the authority of Scripture looks like. If Jesus submitted fully and rightly to the Scriptures then his life is what it looks like for us to do the same. And so if someone is using the Bible, any part of the Bible to uphold processes and mindsets of oppression or war or exclusivity, my humble input to you is that they're doing it wrong. They're wrong. They are missing the point in interpreting the Scriptures the wrong way. Jesus interpreted the Scriptures, all of them, the right way. And His life is a picture of what that looks like for us. Now, you may be thinking here, but pastor, we're talking about the authority of Scripture, and you haven't said anything about obeying the commandments. And I want to say to that, yes, I have, but I'll be more specific. Because when we're waiting for this part of the sermon, I think it reveals that we see this book, the Bible, as a rule book. And the truth is, some of us, some of us just want to have someone tell us, or, or more accurately, tell that guy what to do, and we'll do it. Rather than encountering something or, or ultimately encountering someone that is living and active, something or someone that pierces, that shapes, that changes and guides. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was. He didn't say, this is a trick question. All of them. He didn't say that. No, he answered clearly and honestly, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, 
and with all your strength, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what I'm trying to get us to do. To look at Jesus and follow Jesus, who obeyed those commands perfectly in his life, who loved God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his strength, and loved his neighbor as much as he loved himself. That's why he did the things he did, and that's why he didn't do the things that he didn't do. And so as an example for us, are we, does the command of the Great Commission have authority over me? Yes. Are, are, am I called, commanded to go and make disciples of all nations? Yes. Because I love God. And I love those people as much as I love myself, and I want them to know the God who loves them. That's what Jesus means when he says these are the great commandments, because everything flows from that. And we teach them to obey everything that Jesus commanded us because we know that in obedience there is life, and that demonstrates our love for them which demonstrates our love for God. And so let me say again, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And if we gaze at Him, if we allow our lives to be shaped by Jesus, we will find that we submit to the authority of Scripture more fully than we ever have. Because if we shape our lives around who He was and what He said, then we're going to submit to the Word in the right ways, in the ways that look like loving our neighbor as much as ourselves. All of Scripture is an arrow to Jesus, all of it. The one who came, God in the flesh, who lived and loved perfectly, who laid down his life for us, who died, who was raised. Our lives are meant to remember and reflect the love of him, the love of Christ. We're going to go into a time where we take the Lord's Supper, and one of the ways we seek to remember and reflect Christ's love is in doing this. Each and every week as we come and take the bread and take the cup, and then we, we eat it all together. It's purposeful. There's a point to it. It's why we do it every single week, because there's a point to it. that We're rehearsing and we're reflecting the love of Christ. It's us reminding ourselves of what He did for us and proclaiming to others that we believe that that we believe the gospel message that Jesus came and died for our sins. And that He is the way, and He is the truth, and He is the life. 
God encourage you today. You're going to be dismissed rows, uh, one row at a time. Come and, and receive the bread, receive the cup, and take it back to your seat. We'll take it all together after we sing. But if you don't know Him, the point of the bread and the cup, the point of taking the Lord's Supper together is proclamation. It's first remembering. That's what Jesus tells us to do. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, remember. Remember my body that was broken. Remember my blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Then Paul goes on and explains that each and every time we do that, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. In other words, it's a confession. It's a confession. We, we really believe this is true. We believe, Jesus, you really did come. We really do believe that you died. We really do believe that you were raised and therefore can come again to take us to be with you. And so if, if that's not you, if you don't believe that, then my encouragement would be just, just let other people come and get it and come back. And in, in those moments when, when you're there and, and waiting for others to take it, Consider partaking of Jesus instead of the bread and the cup that just represent, they're just symbols of what He did and who He is. Consider partaking of, of Him in His fullness, of trusting Him with your life. If you want to talk to someone about that, I would urge you, talk to someone about that after the service. Whether it's someone near you or you want to come and talk to one of the leaders of the church, I would urge you to do that. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. You're good to us, Lord. You're good to us. You're good to us in, in entrusting to us your word. And Lord, as we look at Jesus and what it looked like for him to submit fully to your word, Lord, we confess it is beautiful. It is beautiful to see the way that he submits to the authority of your word and loves others, welcomes the outcasts, heals the broken. Lord, we, we pray, Father, that you would help us. We confess our rigidness, how rigidly we approach the Bible. And yet you've given us such a clear picture of the mercy and grace of Jesus and what it ought to look like to submit to your word. So would you help us, Lord? Help us. Some here may, may not want to gaze at Jesus. May want the more rigid aspects of the Bible. I pray, Father, that you would draw them Some, Lord, may just be lost and entangled in other thoughts and things, Lord. I pray that you draw them. For all of us, Lord, I pray that you would help us to not just see in the Gospels, but adore the life of Jesus and to long to walk in your ways. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.